Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So you've probably noticed, Christmas music is everywhere. It's a huge part of the Christmas season. I mean, we're going to hear Christmas music 24-7 from now through New Year's Day. It's going to be in every store. It's going to be in every commercial. It's going to be on TV. It's going to be everywhere. We can't escape these songs. But I'm fine with that because I love Christmas music. And I'm a musician, and so the genre of Christmas music is a very interesting one because there are almost no new songs that get added. Now, I know there's a few, you know, like Jeremiah was a bullfrog doesn't count as a Christmas song. I know they say Joy to the World, but there's not a lot of new Christmas music. It's mostly the old songs over and over and over. They keep getting repeated. They keep getting re-recorded. I mean, we're going to talk about songs today that are almost 300 years old. There are not very many songs that you know that are 300 years old, but Christmas music is. And it ends up being recorded by such a wide variety of artists. I mean, there are Christmas albums from Gregorian monks in chant. There's classical Christmas albums, instrumental Christmas albums. And then there's like some weird ones. There's like New Kids on the Block, Bob Dylan, and then, you know, all, all the way into, you know, the, the music that all the kids sing at their programs. I mean, everyone sings this music. Now, some people get frustrated by Christmas music. They feel like it comes a little bit too early. They, they wish it could wait a little bit longer. Maybe you feel a little bit like the turkey. You're telling Santa, hey, stay out of my lane. But here's the thing. I'm officially going to tell you, Christmas music cannot come too early early. I don't want to hear about your Thanksgiving, okay? I've prepared a special infographic to help you understand how these two series, seasons, relate to each other, okay? <laughs> Christmas starts November 1st. 
we take a three-day break for eating, and then we're right back to Christmas through the end of the year. I know some people have a problem with this. That those people, it's, it's very simple. They, they don't love Jesus is what it is. So since they don't love Jesus, they don't want to hear his songs. They're all about that turkey and that popcorn, right? They want to stay with it. But I say, no way. It's November 1st. That's when we're officially allowed to talk about Christmas. Because Christmas is the season of joy. And much of that culture is set by these songs. And some of the songs are just light and fun. There's nothing wrong with that. But some of these songs have some very deep, meaningful powerful lyrics. So that's why for this whole month, we're going to be, of course, teaching from the scripture as we always do, but we'll be looking to the music of Christmas, looking at the Christmas carols and seeing how they point us into the larger story of Christmas. So today we're going to kind of look at two carols, one from each category, one that's just light and fun, and the other one that's kind of deep and rich and powerful. So one of the most fun songs of Christmas, I think, might be Jingle Bells. Does anyone here like Jingle Bells? Jingle Bells was composed in Massachusetts in about 1850 by a man named James Pierpont. That name sounds familiar to you. It's because you might be familiar with his uncle, John Pierpont Morgan, who started a small company named after himself called J.P. Morgan, and he made a couple of bucks and bought a couple of mansions nearby. Some of you probably work for John Pierpont Morgan. I'm glad you got Sunday off. He wrote this song about a very specific Topic. See, in Medford, Mass., where he grew up and where he was an adult, in the winter they had sled racing. They loved to go sled racing. It was like the American graffiti of that century. And so, oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. That means we're racing, we're going fast, we're having a great time. A one-horse open sleigh in those days was as fast as you can go because a two-horse sleigh doesn't go any faster. Think about it and you'll realize that it wouldn't go any faster. Right? More power, not more speed. One horse open sleigh is the fastest you can go. But if you dive into the lyrics of Jingle Bells, you'll find it's full of whimsy and fun. But it actually never mentions Christmas at all. In fact, some of the later verses get kind of wild. It talks about meeting girls. It talks about accidents. There's one very weird verse where the author says he fell down, he slipped on the snow, and the sleigh rider went by and laughed at him as he laid on his back. I'm like, what was happening here? What a town this was. Sounds like a college story, if you know what I mean. This was a little bit of a wild scene. But this song is light and it's fun. In fact, I've been told that he attended a, a congregation of sorts uh, called a Unitarian congregation. And it's not a church, really, but it's a little different. His father was the leader of this congregation. So they were looking for songs to sing that didn't really mention anything in specific. So they sang Jingle Bells in their congregation, get this, on Thanksgiving. So all of you Thanksgiving people, this is your anthem. This is your jam right here, Jingle Bells. This is all about the day of fun and celebration. But I think we can go deeper than that. Because I think we can take the fun of Jingle Bells, but we can add the strength of what I think is one of the most powerful songs ever written, the carol Joy to the World. Joy to the World was the fruit of the labor of three different men. The first was a man named Isaac Watts. In 1719, he wrote the words, to joy to the world. When Isaac was younger, when he was a teenager, he was in fusion. He went to his church and he told his parents, he said, you know what? The music at church is a little bit old fashioned. I'm not really into it. His parents said, then why don't you start writing music for the church? So Ike said, 
I will. And he started writing tons of music. And in those days, his music was cutting edge and forward thinking. Later in life, he decided to write a huge collection of worship centered on almost every psalm. I think he covered about 100 of them. And he said, joy to the world was centered on this verse. Psalm 98.4. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. It was just a regular poem that he wrote. All right, second contributor is a man named George Handel. He's a British composer. He wrote a piece of music, 1741, called Handel's Messiah. Have any of you sung Messiah? You're allowed to raise your hand higher than this. You should be proud that you've sung Messiah all the way through. All right, so this is just for the three of us. I'll be back to you guys in a minute. So Messiah is really cool because he decides to tell the whole story of the salvation history of God's people. So Handel's Messiah starts with the prophecy in Isaiah. Then it goes through the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, death, resurrection, ascension or glorification, and final victory over sin and death. It's the whole story of God's people in Handel's Messiah. It's an amazing piece of music. He wrote a, a song called Glory to God that was for the angels. When the angels came to announce Jesus was born. Glory to God sounds like this. Little interlude, and I want you to hear this next part. Okay? Listen. Ah, we're starting to hear it. Glory to God. Hey, that's kind of nice, right? Nice little tune. Third man named Lowell Mason, 1848. He decided he wanted to write hymns. And he said, you know, that's a great tune that Handel wrote in Glory to God. I'm going to extract it. I'm going to write a whole song using that tune. He was the one who combined the words of Isaac Watts with the music of George Handel and wrote Joy to the World. Now, how did this become a Christmas song? Joy to the World actually doesn't talk about Christmas either. There's no trees there's actually no birth. There's no baby. Think about it. Well, a couple of reasons. Of course, we have the most famous verse in the entire Christmas story from Luke 10. It says, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of... Ah, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The queen spelled it with a U. Savior. Now, scholars tell us that this is the only verse in the entire Bible that Savior, Christ, and Lord are in the same verse. So this is the whole story of Christmas right here. What is the great joy? We have the Savior, who's Christ the Lord. End of story. So joy to the world is probably the greatest, succinct announcement of the beautiful joy that comes to all of mankind through Jesus himself. But it's not confined just to his birth. And so today, for more of an in-depth look, we're going to look at the Gospel of John. So grab a Bible, if you would. Definitely turn to the Gospel of John, because we're going to read a big, big section. We're going to bounce back and forth. We're going to stop. We're going to start. I think you'll be a little bit lost if you don't have a Bible. So take some time. Turn to John 16. I want to give you the context of what we're reading. This is really close to the end of the Gospel of John. John, as a writer, dedicated a lot of time to Jesus last week and last week days. And for several chapters now, it's been, well, Holy Thursday. Chapters before, they've already had the Last Supper. They've already had the First Communion. And here in John 16, they are walking from 
the upper room, to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would later be betrayed. This was really his last chance to speak to his disciples as a free man before he would die and then be raised again. So I find it fascinating because what does Jesus want to talk about in that moment? What does Jesus say? This is my last moment with these guys. What do I need to do? And he has a thesis statement in one previous chapter where he says, I have told you this, this is plural, all this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. That's the point of what Jesus is trying to do his last time with the disciples. He is safeguarding their joy. He's telling them what you're about to go through when Jesus, when I die and I'm raised again, that's going to be really, really hard for you and I'm worried about your joy. And so Jesus says, I want to talk to you about what's going to happen so that I can safeguard your joy. All right, let's start in 16, verse 5. Jesus says, Now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me where are you going. Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Pause there. He said, it is for your good that I'm going away. That seems like a crazy statement to me. I'm sorry to say that about something Jesus himself said. That seems a little bit nutty. Jesus is saying, it's going to be better for you after I'm gone. What? If you ask people, hey, if you could have dinner with three people in all of history, who would you have dinner with? Jesus will be the number one. If you ask people, hey, if you had a time machine, what would you do? Well, they talk about Bethlehem. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's going to be better for you after I'm gone. It's shocking. And the translators, they don't shy away from it. Look at this New Living Translation. Jesus says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. The message, it is better for you that I leave. What is he talking about? How is it going to be better for the disciples to no longer be with Jesus? You would think being with Jesus physically, personally, walking next to him, seeing how he conducts his business, listening to every word he says, is there possibly a better place that anyone could be except there? And Jesus himself says, ah, it's going to be better. How is that? Continuing, verse 7. Very truly I tell you, it is for your own good that I am going away. Unless I go away... The advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. The advocate is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, after I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, and that's going to be better. That's a little hard to swallow, I think. So Jesus is saying when he's gone and the Holy Spirit comes, that's going to be better for us as God's people. Then he starts to clarify what he means. He says, when he, this is the Holy Spirit, verse 8, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Then he unpacks all three. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So he's talking about here that first the Spirit is going to extend the message of Christ. This is what Jesus has already been saying. He's saying, listen, there's going to be some important things here. People are going to be finally set right about sin because they don't believe in Jesus. They're going to be set right about righteousness, which comes from above, not from something you can do here. And they're going to be set right about judgment because the enemy of this world has already been defeated. So he's going to be extending the teaching of Jesus. 
But then Jesus goes on, verse 12. He says, I have so much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Jesus says, there's more. There's so much more, but you're not ready. I can't give it all to you right now. You're not far enough along. 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Extension. You're not ready for everything Jesus has right now. But the spirit is going to extend that ministry. He's going to continue to work, continue to teach, continue to reveal all truth, not some truth, not part of the truth, all truth to be revealed through the Spirit as the extension of what Jesus has done. And then they're, they're thinking the same thing you are. They're like, I don't know, there's like, there's like a, is there going to be a Jesus camp? Is there going to be a Holy Spirit camp? How is this all going to work? Jesus says, no, 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 here's what it looks like. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, that's Jesus, because it is for me, Jesus, that he, Holy Spirit, will receive what he, Holy Spirit, will make known to you, actually you, okay? Then Jesus says, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That's Jesus. That's why he said, the Spirit will receive from me, but Jesus, he will make known to you, again, actually you. Can you follow that at all? He's just constantly bouncing around. He's saying, well, the Spirit, here's it from me, but I got it from God. And so what I've been saying, the Spirit's going to say, because we're all one. We're all saying the same thing. We're all bringing the same message. And so Jesus says, this is what you need in this world. All right, well, you're not going to believe this. Verse 16, Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Read that again. In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this point, the disciples are just very confused. I know that's hard to believe. They're very confused. Wait, you said it would be better if you were gone. Then you said after you're gone, you're going to send the advocate. And then the advocate and you and the father, you have this whole like triangle thing going that's a little bit hard for me to follow, but that's going to be better somehow. And Jesus says, yes. And they say, how? Right? So what do they do? Do they ask Jesus? Of course not. They talk to each other. Verse 17. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more? Then after a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. They're asking each other. So Jesus, I think he said he's going to the Father, which means he's going to die. But then he also said he's going to go away and then come back, and that makes no sense. Because how do you die and then come back? I know that you know the rest of the story, but they did not. So we have to forgive them a little bit for that not being like their default assumption. Like, oh, I think he's going to die and then undie, because that's what people do all the time. Of course not. Totally bizarre. Jesus, of course, knows they're talking to each other, not probably because he's divine, also just because he's a teacher and he knows when the students start talking to each other, right? Jesus saw they wanted to ask him about this, so he said, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, verse 20, very truly I tell you, you will meet, weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Still not super helpful, let's be honest. Jesus says, don't worry, when everyone else is happy, you're going to be sad, but you're going to get happy again soon. They're like, okay. Then Jesus starts to break it down in a new way. A brand new example that he hasn't used up to this point. Verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. They're going, mm-hmm, we, that we understand. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. See, Jesus is starting to talk about that concept of extension again, 
of process, of saying, yes, there will be some pain right now, as in the pains of childbirth. I mean, the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, up until now. But out of that pain will emerge joy. Verse 22, if you're still awake, read verse 22 with me. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. If you're using a digital Bible, you should highlight that verse. If you have a print Bible, you should underline it. He says, this is the joy that no one will take from you. The joy of realizing that the Spirit is coming, and by the way, has come, and will forever extend the ministry of Jesus, that what Jesus was doing on this earth now extends forever in the holy unity and in holy effectiveness of the Trinity because the Spirit has come. So what is the true source of the joy to the world? Jesus is born. Jesus lives. Jesus dies. Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus returns to heaven, and the Holy Spirit comes to earth. And for a lot of us, we can get stuck on the calendar in one of these stations. Jesus is born. That's now. That's what we celebrate this month. We love it. We're so excited that Jesus was born. And this chain reaction would have never started without Jesus having come. But then Jesus lived. And this is where we understand his teaching. We understand all the things that he taught us about how to love each other and how to treat each other and how to stand up for what is right, how to do good in this world, how to make the world better than how you found it. Some people are stuck there. That's all they're worried about. I want to make the world a better place. They don't worry about that Jesus was born. They just want to make the world better. It's a shadow, but it's not enough. Good Friday, Jesus dies. Our most solemn night of the year that we remember Jesus died. Some people, their tradition really, really emphasizes the death of Jesus. It's in their iconography. It's in their prayers. They really focus on the death of Jesus. But you have to go further past Good Friday into Easter that Jesus rose again. And even more people get stuck here because they feel like that is the whole story. Jesus was born. He taught amazing things. He died and he rose again, proving his victory over sin and death forever. Yes, fantastic. Jesus said, it's not quite the joy that no one can take from you. Because Jesus ascended into heaven, and then the Spirit is sent on his behalf. And that is how we find true and everlasting joy. Let me ask you this. Do you feel like joy is getting a little bit harder to find? I think a lot of people are starting to feel like that. Researchers tell us that it absolutely is getting harder to find. In the last 30 years, which most of you in this room have experienced a good part of those 30 years, there's been a shift in the mindset of the culture that we live in. There used to be the modernist mindset. The modernist mindset said the world is getting better. The modernist mindset said if you work hard enough, it will happen. The modernist mindset said things are on the right track and they will last forever. The modernist mindset said up and to the right. The world is improving constantly. That is no longer the dominant thought in our culture today. Researchers tell us that now people believe the world is getting worse than ever. That the world is in decline. That the world is getting worse. That this generation that's coming up now, they're the first generation that says, I don't think 
I'm going to achieve what my parents achieved. Now, whether they do or not is a different conversation, but they're the first generation that believes that in the history of our country. Say, I think we might have peaked. I think things might not be as good as they used to be. The postmodernist mindset says things are getting worse. In fact, they tell us that in our psyche that we collectively share now that bad news impacts us five times as much as good news. We have a growing awareness of the fragility of the world we live in. 200 years ago, people didn't worry about pollution. The earth was a, was a stronghold that would live forever. Now we're saying, oh, I don't, I don't know how well this is going. We might need to clean this up a little bit. Some people, of course, blame the heavy negativity of social media to lending to this. Others say, you know, the rise of terrorism and the uncertainty that that produces in the world has given us this sense of great uncertainty. And so people are looking for more and new ways to be happy. A researcher named David Murray, he said, you know, there are seven kinds of happiness. Here are the first six. Nature happiness, meaning you like being outside. Seeing beautiful nature is what fills you with happiness and joy. Social happiness, you love to be around people that they just fill you up and those interactions could be family, could be friends, could be romantic. That is how you find happiness in social relationships. The third one he calls humor happiness, literally being happy because someone is funny. Four, vocational happiness. You would find happiness in your job, in a career, something that you do well, you do it effectively, the world is made better because you do it. Or there's physical happiness, people who really just enjoy the, the physicality of exercise, of nutrition. These people are very, you know, they, they might run races, they might work out, this is kind of their happiness. Or intellectual happiness, people who feel that sense of joy from reading a good book or from enjoying you know, a, a deep article or having a conversation about deep and heavy things. And all six of these types of happiness are legitimate. Many of you would resonate with one or several of these. In fact, it's kind of fun to teach because as I'm looking around, I'm seeing people that I know. I'm like, oh, there's an intellectual happiness. Oh, there's a physical happiness. Oh, there's a humor happiness. Because we all experience this and there's nothing wrong with it. But clearly, all of these can be taken away. And all of them can let you down. If you find your joy in physical happiness, I'm sorry to tell you, but one day you will get old and your body will hurt like it didn't used to. You get your joy in social happiness, well, there are going to be days where people are just mean. That's not going to make you happy anymore. Natural happiness, you may hit periods and seasons of your life where you don't have access to be outside, where you can't go and enjoy beautiful creation, whether it's distant or whether it's been destroyed, and that can let you down. Intellectual happiness, sorry to tell you, that can fade sometimes when you get old too. All of these things can let you down. We've all known people that lost their sense of humor, right? Hopefully none of you. So David Murray says, you cannot rely on any of these six because you must go into what he calls spiritual happiness, which is the true joy that Jesus is talking about in John 16, because these will never be enough. You will always be left wanting more. And in fact, all of them you will need in ever-increasing measure in order to feel the same amount of happiness that you felt before. Right? So if you used to be happy with three friends, soon you'll be tired of those three. You're going to need four. You used to be happy running half marathons. Now you have to run marathons. Then you have to run ultra marathons. And then your feet hurt all the time. Okay? Or, you know, 
humor happiness. One day you just run out of material. Your jokes don't land anymore. Then what do you do? You talk about ultra marathons. Like you have nothing left. All of these things can fade. So how do we then pursue and experience true joy today? Now be careful because when we're talking about true joy, I think there's two you know, potholes that people step into. The first one is they say, well, God wants you to be healthy, happy, and wise. And as long as you do these magic things, he will bless you. You will have money. You will have happiness. You will have prosperity. No. That's not what we're talking about. And here's why. You're walking up the street the wrong way. God isn't going to invest more into you so that you can become happy. You are going to invest more into God so that you can experience his true joy. It's as backward as can be. It can look similar if you're not paying attention, but it completely runs the other way. We're also not talking about the power of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale. As long as you think good thoughts, good things will happen. No, no, no. We're not talking about that either. We're talking about truly investing in this spirit-filled happiness. So how do we do that? First, I would love to see you journey into a spirit-filled life. What do I mean by that? I don't know how often you think about the fact that the Holy Spirit, if you follow Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you and with you and empowering you. Now, some Christian traditions really run with this idea and leave a lot of other people very nervous to talk about the Spirit. They say, I don't know, the Spirit-filled people, those are the weird ones. I don't want to be one of those people. Don't worry. Every believer is Spirit-filled. And we need to learn to embrace the fact that the Spirit is in us. Last week, we talked about how in prayer you can hear God's voice. That's what we're talking about. We've talked many times about how God empowers you for service in His kingdom. That is through His Holy Spirit. And the time that you spend praying, the time that you spend reading, the time that you spend in Christian community, all of that is a journey into a Spirit-filled life. And I would love to see you grow in your sensitivity to the Spirit, knowing that the Spirit has, has met you and is calling you to Himself and is revealing and extending the teaching of Jesus in your life. If that just sounds a little bit too weird, hear me out because it wasn't too weird for Jesus because Jesus says this is better than being with Jesus the man is to walk with the Holy Spirit. Two, I hope you will observe the discipline of celebration. And I mean that because how can you be disciplined to celebrate? That's kind of a weird combination. You're going to have to dedicate yourself to celebrating because it's, it's easy to put celebration to the side. Now, for a certain type of person, once you accomplish something, it's in the past. Once a moment has come, it's in the past. You know, these are the people who leave the wedding before the cake is cut. You know, like, I saw the thing, it's over. Let's go home. Let's beat the traffic. Celebration is an incredibly important part of the joy of the Christian life. Think about the Old Testament. We don't have time to go into it, but the entire religious routine of the Old Testament was based on a cycles of celebration. God would tell them, this time of year, you're going to have this feast and this party. Then you're going to wait a few months, you're going to have this feast and this party. You're going to wait a few months, have a solemn one, wait eight days, then have a feast and a party. It was part of how they retained and increased their joy. That's why we at Beacon try our best to make December super, super fun. There is no spiritual significance to you wearing an ugly Christmas sweater. It's supposed to be fun. I'll tell you, last night I went shopping, 
I'm like, you know what? I wear the same shirt to church every week. It's time to get a new one. So I went out, and I was doing well. I picked out a few things, um, a couple sweaters, and then I saw my sweater for December 22nd. But I didn't have it yet. I took the regular sweater and pants and a couple things over to the dressing room. There was a nice woman there, and she said to me, hey, you go to the Beacon Church. I said, yes, I do. Do you go to the Beacon Church? She said, no, I don't, but my son does. I don't know if you know him. She told me, yeah, you know, my son, he's Richard. I'm like, oh, I know Richard. Richard's running the graphics right now, hiding from all of you guys. And then she said, oh, have a great December. I see that you're buying your ugly Christmas sweater. I said, no. She's like, oh, Merry Christmas. Discipline yourself to celebrating. Celebrate that which deserves joy and fun. Don't take this part of your life so seriously. Don't be so tightly wound. Celebrate that which deserves celebrating. The scriptures are full of examples and instructions and commands to celebrate that which is worthy of celebration. And with this, and I think it's important to mention this around the holidays, we also have to yearn for joy in times of sorrow. I know that the holidays are not happy chuckles for everyone. In fact, for a lot of people, it comes and goes. It'll be your first holiday without someone that is important to you. Or it'll be a difficult time because you, you, you're not going to have the Christmas that you used to have because you don't have the job that you used to have. Or you don't have the relationship that you used to have. And this was one of the most important things Jesus said when he was safeguarding the joy of his disciples. He said, the rough times are coming. But through that comes the joy. Remember he talked about the mother. She gives birth and out of her pain comes the joy. That is the, the process of joy that she observes. And some of you are thinking, this is not going to be a great season for me. I'm not looking forward to it. This is when you start to yearn for that joy that is yet to come, that comes to you through his spirit. Because yes, you are suffering a great and terrible loss, but he suffered the greatest, most terrible loss. He was alienated from his father in order to take on the sins of us so that we could walk through that sorrow and emerge with joy. And not emerge alone with joy, but emerge with the spirit to observe and enjoy his joy. So I'm going to ask the band to come back up, and, and we're going to not rush out of here. We're going to take some time for worship right now. Because I, I don't want you to just simply walk away with information. Yes, I know it spells joy. It has to. It's required when you speak on joy. They tell you that in seminary. I didn't go with Jesus, others, and you, but it's almost the same sermon, right? I don't want you to just leave with factual information and say, yes, you know, I do need to slow down a little bit. I need to do less and celebrate more this Christmas, which is true. But I think we can extend that message so much further to say, I'm going to immerse myself in the Spirit. I'm going to be a person who worships. I'm going to be a person who passionately engages in His mission for His glory. I'm going to intentionally choose to worship. I will purposefully pursue joy to know and experience that great joy that Jesus promised us. He said, this is the joy that no one can take away from me.